with us? I'd love you to pray. Not just now, but throughout this whole thing. Father, we just asked you to lead us to your heart. There's a very, very, very real presence and force that despises that thought. We're going to look at him and his forces this morning. It's been a hard week for me. I feel like the disciples at the heart of another one of the writer's account of this story, that this is, this is hard teaching. But it's essential. So Holy Spirit, break me down. Humble me. Freeze the me part of me. And you open my mouth. And you bring the words from me. That by your grace would lead people to your heart. Thank you. Amen. All right, I would highly recommend that you fasten your spiritual seatbelts because I can almost guarantee there will be some turbulence as we go through this this morning. That's where we're going to be this week. You can go there, and whether you have paper or a device, or we'll have the bulk of it up here. But last week as gathered worship was winding down, I already had a pretty good idea where I wanted to go with this week's portion from our study in the book of Luke. Then I was hit really hard by the last song we sang last week. It was filled with these powerful statements that really connect with what I was already thinking for this week. I mean, just look at some of the things we said musically. When the sea is calm and all is right, in the good I'll follow you. When the boat is tossed upon the waves, when I wonder if you'll keep me safe, in the storms I'll follow you. In the good things and in the hardest parts, I believe and I will follow you. Really? Really? That that question, really? brings us to a question at the heart of today's study. And the question hits me particularly hard and often. Jesus put the question to his first disciples, his first followers, the first version of those of us who claim to follow him, who sing things like, in the good things and in the hardest part, I believe and I will follow you. Now, Jesus' question from Luke 8. Where's your faith? That's a huge question. 
especially at a time when this nation seems as divided as ever, when people seem so perplexed about who who or what to support, what or who to follow and why. Jesus invited his followers to take a boat ride, and he took a nap. It seemed safe at first, even pleasant. You may have experienced or may be experiencing something like it with God right now. You glance back at that song, the sea is calm and all is right. But then things started going wrong. Can you relate right now? Have you ever been able to? Now, a literal storm might not have blown into your story, but something happened that was just as unexpected, maybe even scary, and you had reason to wonder if God was napping, if he was there at all. In the disciples' case, they knew Jesus was there. I mean, they could see him sleeping. Even though a fierce storm came down on the lake, now technically it was the Sea of Galilee, the boat was filling with water and they were in real danger. Now, after years of enough research and interviews to get himself to the place where he absolutely believed it, Luke reported Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. Calm. At least on the outside. Jesus was about to really stir things up for them and for us on the inside. Where is your faith? After picking that little question apart as much as I'm able, I believe the emphasis in the question is on the word where. Where is your faith? I believe whether we realize it or not, we all have faith. Many of us have faith in many things. I recently told an atheist science teacher friend of mine that even he has faith. He just calls that faith theory. We show faith in different ways, to different degrees, at different times. I mean, I drove here this morning without inspecting the brakes or the steering mechanism. We got home safely yesterday, so I had faith nothing had changed since yesterday. Grabbed a cup of coffee on my way here. I had faith Starbucks was using clean cups, not ones they pulled out of the trash after closing time yesterday. I drink from the water fountain here pretty much every Sunday. I have faith that the city of La Habra keeps its water safe. Um, Without inspecting it, I sat in a chair, and I had faith that it would hold me. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those kinds of faith. But what Jesus had in mind here was something so much bigger. He was talking about faith in something beyond getting through a boat or a plane or a car trip. And something that would last much longer than a storm. He was talking about faith, about eternal life. 
And as we will see later, that includes life here and now. If you look at what Luke added in around in and around this story, and you see what Matthew, Mark, and John included in their reports on it, it came as Jesus was really beginning to ask those who claimed to be his disciples, his followers, if they were really ready to start really thinking about what really following him in life really means. That's why I said, where is your faith? And when it comes to eternity, do you really trust Jesus? Do you really trust Jesus? Do you really trust Jesus? Do you really trust Him enough to really follow Him and what He has to say about real life? When it comes to life and death, and eternity. Where's your faith? The air was perfectly still by the time Jesus asked that. Wouldn't be surprised if an awkward silence settled over the disciples while the question hung in the air. And Luke reported, they were afraid. And they marveled. No kidding. He just spoke and ended a storm. Finally, the silence was broken. Who is this? Jesus' first followers asked that. They had already been following, but they asked, "Who, who, who is this? Man, that's a crucial question to wrestle with before you follow anyone too far. I wrote something Dr. Talley said last week into the margin of my Bible. He said, disciples, disciple. That seems really obvious when you just look at the words, but it doesn't seem to happen as much as it could and should in real life. I I mean, I suspect You've noticed the number of places of worship you pass on your way to or from here. Found a website that says there are over 1,000 evangelical or mainline Protestant churches just in Orange County. Uh, Some other research claims on an average Sunday, there are over 1.6 million people in those kinds of churches every Sunday. Now, obviously, not all of them could be considered genuine disciples, but even if there are half that many disciples around, doesn't it seem as though there should be more discipling going on? In the eight months we've been here, I've had a lot of long conversations about that and and, and why it might be. Go back to the question, the first followers of Jesus asked out on the sea, who is this? I believe that is precisely what Jesus wanted them to deal with, even to wrestle with. I believe He wants us to continue 
to consider our answer to that question. Our answer to it has a dramatic impact impact on our answer to the question, where is your faith? And see, our confidence, whoa, what happened there? Our confidence in discipling is tightly tied to what we believe about and our confidence in who we are following. In John's report on this scene, he mentioned how many people who had been following Jesus decided to quit following Jesus, largely because of what happened in and around this scene. Jesus went out of his way to explain how following him was going to be anything but easy. Despite that, Peter said he and the other core 11 were in. However, the way Luke describes this scene, the first followers were still kind of scratching their heads about who he really was. They were likely still wrestling with that in verse 26 in chapter 8 as they pulled the boat up on a desolate shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, in contrast to the mobs and the craziness they had left on the other side of the lake, there wasn't anyone waiting, at least anyone they could see as the boat pulled towards shore, I suspect they were grateful for the extension of the calm that had come out on the sea. However, I wouldn't be surprised if the two questions echoed inside them. Where is our faith? Who is he? They were about to get a powerful illustration of the answer to that. And when Jesus stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had a demon. Now, the word met can seem fairly benign and safe, but the original word was also used in military terms, as in the two sides met on the battlefield. As we will see, that was more what was going on here. Notice the phrase, from the city. It had been a while since he had actually lived there because Luke explained for a long time this man had not worn clothes. That would have been just as weird in that culture as it is in ours. Uh, For a long time he had not lived in a house. He had lived in the tombs. Though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken or more literally just kept breaking his chains, and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Luke doesn't mention the disciples doing anything here. I wouldn't be surprised if they were just kind of like frozen as this bruised, scratched, wild-eyed, naked man walked or ran screaming toward Jesus. Remember the question they had carried from the boat? Who is this? Well, the demonic maniac was about to find the answer to that question. And when he saw Jesus, is the next thing Luke writes. The word saw was more than just a visual connection. The word and the way Luke used it is like the difference between me saying, oh, I see these words on the page, 
and me really studying them to the point where I start to get what they really mean, and I say, oh, I see. Do you get the distinction? I, I see these words. Oh, 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 I see. When he saw Jesus. Now, despite how it looks in a lot of religious art, Jesus, newsflash, didn't glow. Didn't have a gold halo that kind of hovered over him everywhere he went. That was not the kind of thing people saw when they looked at him. The prophet Isaiah said there wasn't anything impressive about the way he looked. And the way Luke used the word for saw here was more like saw him for who he really was and is. That's why when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him. One Bible dictionary says the word for cried meant to raise a cry from the depth of the throat. And the phrase fell down was more like flung himself down at his feet. So really seeing Jesus caused this demonic maniac to cry out and fall down before Jesus. Now, this whole scene unfolded in clear view of some pig keepers. They were on a hillside nearby where they likely also had a view of the lake. And from what Luke wrote about the area's infamous residents and with the way Matthew let us know he wasn't the only demoniac there, I don't imagine many people visited this area. Considering how well-known he was and why, I'm sure the pig keepers noticed the boat heading toward his spot. And I suspect they were watching closely as those guys pulled the boat up on the shore in his area. Can't imagine the things they had seen and heard about him doing to people over the years. So I picture just looks of absolute amazement on their faces when he cried out and fell down before Jesus. And this is where the story goes from amazing because of what can be seen by the human eye to absolutely astonishing because of what can't be seen. See, neither the pig keepers at a distance nor the disciples right beside them would have known what was really going on. Why the demonic maniac screamed and collapsed at the feet of the carpenter. Remember the question the disciples had carried in from the boat. Who is this? Well, the demonic maniac stopped shrieking and answered the question. He called Jesus Son of the Most High God. None of his followers had called Jesus anything like that up to that point in this story. Makes me think about something Jesus' brother told a wide variety of his followers. He said, you believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe that. And what? They shudder. In the first part of that statement, James more literally said, you believe 
God is. The statement comes from the great I am statement, if you know anything about the Old Testament. And the way the little word for and was written at the end of that linked the two verbs at each end of it. It put them together, showing the second thing happened as a result of the first. Kind of like hashtag believe and shudder. You can't do one without the other. (laughs) Believing makes demons shudder. So this was more fully like the demons believe God is. And when they think about it for even a nanosecond, they shudder. And it's as though the demons could teach us a few things about worship. Whether we're on our own or we come together in places like this and we learn or we remember our answer to the question, who is this? Who is this? But the demons cannot possibly relate to something John wrote for authentic followers of Jesus. He, God, the great I am, who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Wow, I wish this was a place where people said amen on statements like that. I'm not. Can you hear me now? I'm not the kind of person that sees a demon around every corner, but this is how my week has been. Those of us who, by God's grace, have the Holy Spirit in us, do not dare forget. Without that grace, we are no match for Satan. At the same time, I wonder if demons ever wonder why I don't react differently than I often do when I really see that He is in me. And He who is in me is greater than He who is in the world. And in case you don't know or have forgotten, that's an immeasurable understatement. 
See, a generation of church kids have been told by cartoon vegetables that God is bigger than the boogeyman, bigger than Godzilla and the monsters on TV. Yeah, you know it. Now, while that is true, the word bigger is far too small. God is infinitely bigger than Satan. In every sense of the word, bigger. Have you watched any news over the past two weeks? Out of France, out of Dallas, out of Minnesota, out of Louisiana. The more you watch, who seems bigger? The more you watch, does it make it harder to believe where sin increased, grace abounded? All the more. Or to believe he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. And when the demonic maniac really saw Jesus, really saw Jesus, he let out a long, blood-curdling shriek and flung himself to the ground. Everyone there heard and saw that part, but what did he really see that nobody else did? I believe this is one of many scenes in the Bible that describes both the natural and the supernatural. Supernatural came from a Latin word that means above or beyond nature. While the people saw the man react naturally, there was also something going on supernaturally. He was able to see, air quotes, something supernatural. Earlier, we asked God to open the eyes of our hearts. That song came from the Apostle Paul's prayer that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened. There is no x-ray machine that can show eyes on our hearts. But they are as real as anything God included in his creation. In creation, you see, the natural entered into the supernatural. The supernatural is eternal. The natural was brought into the supernatural. The supernatural is more fully real than the natural. If someone came out with an app like Pokemon Go that allowed you to see everything that is going on around us all the time from both sides in the supernatural, would you want it on your smartphone? (laughs) Sorry, this is obviously more the Pentecostal charismatic microphone. The other one was Baptist or Methodist. It just can't handle the volume and the intensity. As far as I can tell, this was the first time the disciples experienced anything this overtly supernatural with Jesus. And most of them likely knew what God had said to the prophet Hosea. I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. 
And God added a key piece to that through the prophet Zechariah, clarifying that the most spectacular things ever seen will not be purely natural. It is not by force, nor by strength, but by my politicians. No. My spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Now, Jesus knew that as well as anyone because as part of the unfathomable trinity, he knows the spirit better than any human can. He also knows the supernatural world better than anyone can. And what he meant when he talked about the Holy Spirit was totally new ground for these people. And at the time he later said it, they didn't have a clue what he meant when Jesus told his closest followers, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. See, God's design meant Jesus going away brought the Holy Spirit into a ministry he never had before. And a ministry he has had ever since. Jesus submitted to and still submits to the Holy Spirit in his ministry to people, in people, through people. And while he still does some pretty spectacular, visible things, his most miraculous work is done inside followers of Jesus. And while we do our thing here in the natural world, the Holy Spirit is doing his thing supernaturally. And that's why nobody could see the depths of what was really going on when Jesus commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. And and Luke clarified the man had many demons that had entered him. Now, I, I realize this story can seem at least a little strange in what is seen as a sophisticated and even an advanced culture like L.A.'s. While I would never encourage anyone to go looking for it, I can assure you there are things like this going on all around the world right now and closer to this place than most people realize or want to admit. But the way Satan and his forces try to hit most of us is far more subtle. The first word most English Bibles use to describe him still applies. Ooh, he's crafty. He's sneaky. He's shrewd. He's devious. And as the story unfolds, Luke's report captures the intermingling of the natural and the supernatural. See, first Luke described the man speaking to Jesus with his natural voice. The man said, I beg you, do not torment me. And Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. Well, then things switched to some kind of supernatural communication as the demons could somehow be heard. And see, it says they begged Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. 
Now, if you know this story at all, you likely know the demons made what seems like a really bizarre request of Jesus to send them into a couple thousand pigs. For the sake of time, I'm going to give this part of the story kind of a headline news sort of approach. I'll simply say Jesus said or did something that got the demons into the pigs, which sent them stampeding down a hill and into the sea where the pigs all drowned. To me, that illustrates Satan's strategy is based on lying, stealing, destroying, and killing, even when it comes to his own forces although he seems to have convinced them they shouldn't worry, the Bible says they will join him in the lake of fire and sulfur, tormented day and night forever and ever. I do believe Satan's forces know the Bible. He simply taught them his version of it. Back then they would have known the Old Testament better than even the top Pharisees, and it appears they were and are aware of some kind of very real danger for them. And they seem aware that Jesus controls it, and they frantically pleaded with him to not have them thrown into the abyss. Now, the abyss was a fascinating word. It wasn't a noun, actually, here. It was an adjective. It was like bottomless or immeasurably deep. They said, don't throw us into the immeasurably deep. We won't know what demons really know about it until heaven, if then. But apparently one thing people have in common with them is that we know enough about hell to fear it but I do not believe any of us have any idea how horrific and how real it really is. And it's referred to in such a flippant way all across our culture. I cannot describe how much of a battle it was to study and to write this part of this lesson. I finally hit the point where I had to literally will myself to not think about how I feel about hell. Do you understand what I'm saying? I actually had to will myself to not think about how I feel about hell. And I totally empathize with what C.S. Lewis wrote. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than hell if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture and especially of our Lord Jesus' own words. And when I shut out how I feel, I don't see how someone can read what the Bible really says and not see a lot of blunt, literal teaching on hell, even if it is indescribably hideous, and even if I don't fully understand it. And I'm almost apologetic that the children are here this morning, but not entirely. I mean... A lot of people jokingly or seriously tell someone to go to there. But I don't think I could ever wish anyone to stay there. 
You know what I mean? In my frustration, I might say, I'll go to hell. But stay? Stay? Immeasurable, infinite distance apart from God. Now, as I get older, while I am increasingly excited about the thought of eternal life with God, I'm also increasingly disturbed by the thought of eternal life without Him. And just getting little glimpses of the kinds of things Satan can do, I don't even like to think about him ruling and directing everything and everyone all the time completely unrestrained. Consider the demonstrations of sin on the news on any given day. And now try to think of nothing but that everywhere, 24-7. Do you really want the eyes of your heart open? (laughs) As much as I wrestle with this, I feel as though I should mention, I believe as created beings just like us, Angels and demons cannot fully comprehend eternity. But again, this story seems to show demons know enough about it to know where they don't want to spend it. And Jesus is the one who controls eternity. Now, that doesn't explain to me why everyone was so freaked out by the man's condition after the chaos with the demons and the pigs and the drowning. I don't suppose this man cared. Because when all of those people turned back from the sea, they found him sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Now, I really like the word that was there for in his right mind. Bible historian William Barclay says it describes someone who had every part of his nature under perfect control in whose heart Christ reigns supreme. The former demoniac had apparently found the answer to Jesus' question. Where's your faith? That came because the Holy Spirit opened the eyes of his heart. And as it should be, his answer to the question of who Jesus is had a dramatic and an eternal impact on who he became. His story is a graphic illustration that no one is beyond the hope that comes from true grace. Understandably, as Jesus was getting into the boat to go back to the other side of the sea, the man begged him to take him along. But Jesus said, no, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. That is a profoundly simple picture of a missionary call and of evangelism. (laughs) I mean, that just sums it up right there. That is a missionary call and that is evangelism. They both have to do with declaring what God has done for me. And as musical philosopher Avril Lavigne asked, why did we have to go and make it so complicated? If Jesus 
sent this dude out? Where's his training? (laughs) If Jesus sent this dude out, who among us wouldn't he send? Sorry. Got a little control there. Even when I get stuck thinking he hasn't done or isn't doing much for me, coming back to the core truth ought to be more than enough to declare he saved me from hell. I mean, if I got nothing else to share with people, isn't that more than enough? I mean, me. <laughs> Do you know me? Well, if you, if you knew me as well as I know me, I wouldn't blame you for not wanting to save me from hell. And that thought leads the way back into music. And we're going to remember and we're going to rehearse the kinds of declarations we're called to make as soon as we finish gathered worship. But we rehearse it in here. You see, what what we're called to proclaim, declare out there, we rehearse together in here. So as they come back up, come, you can take this and put it in its place. And you need to know my throat is a little wonkier than normal. And, and, and as they're doing their thing,